the Irish Times for January the 2nd, 1926, contained a long article dealing with what it described as the official beginning of the Irish Free State Broadcasting Service. Preliminary tests, the Times said, had been successful, and... It was in a confident spirit that all concerned in the transmission of the first regular programme assured each other, about half-past seven, that everything was perfectly in order. In the studio at the back of warehouse buildings in Henry Street were the station director, Mr Seamus Clandillon, the musical director, Mr Vincent O'Brien, the station announcer, Mr Seamus Hughes, Dr Douglas Hyde, and most of the appointed performers in the first programme. Another group concerned was at Beggar's Bush Barracks. This comprised the number one army band of the Free State Army and the official in charge of the microphone there. At a quarter to eight, the call sign 2RN and tuning note having been given from the transmitter, Dr Douglas Hyde stood there beside the station director facing the microphone into which he spoke his opening address. This he began in English, but the main part was in Irish Gaelic, which has come to its present degree of use through his reviving efforts. After the speech, Beggar's Bush was plugged in and the army band performance of Colonel Brazé's first Irish Fantasia commenced. The Fantasia lasted a good deal longer than the 15 minutes specified in the programme and from that point the performances were some minutes behind schedule. In other respects, the promise of the programme was fulfilled satisfactorily. How did the country receive this first night of wireless? In Kingstown, the 2RN programme was heard to the complete satisfaction of listeners in. Possessors of five, three and two valve sets and crystal sets were delighted with the receptions. A lady describing a five valve set said that the tone was very pure, but that the reception was even better on a three valve set. Throughout the programme, the hearing with a loudspeaker was perfectly clear. The performers might have been in the same room with the hearers. On a crystal set, listeners with headphones were highly pleased, the volume of sound being wholly satisfactory. I promise we're not making this up. It was all in the papers. Wireless enthusiasts in Belfast got a good account of the proceedings at the opening of the Free State Broadcasting Station in Dublin, which was relayed to all stations by the British Broadcasting Company. The speeches, being in Irish, were not generally understood but every word was heard distinctly. Well, so far as Cork is concerned, broadcasting from the new Dublin station was a complete failure. Not only was the programme unrecognised on anything less than a six-valve set, but even with this powerful unit, only faint signals could be heard with the ear close to the loudspeaker. But... A listener in Lancashire reported that he heard the speech, music and songs quite clearly on a one-valve set. The wonder then was just to hear 
Ah, simple happy days. Yet not so simple for those who had to run the service. A fair indication of the limitations under which they worked is the fact that one of those who appeared as a singer in that first night of broadcasting was the station director himself, Seamus Clandillon. Another of the artists who contributed to the programme that night was the pianist, Diana Copeman, who played John Field's Nocturne in G and the Polonaise in E-flat by Chopin. Miss Copeman, you obviously must have been very young when you made this first broadcast. Oh, indeed I was. I was so young that I, I got terrified almost at being offered a fee. And did you rehearse in the studio beforehand or did you go there directly the very first night? I don't remember rehearsing because I remember when I w went into the studio being terrified. It was all so dark and more terrified when I saw in a corner Mr. White was known as H.R.W., the music critic. You had, I think, some difficulty even in finding the broadcasting studio. I had because I didn't know where the place was, and when I got to the place, it didn't look like what might be a studio, and it was all very ramshackle and, as I say, dark and dismal, and I got there and was into the room. It was with black curtains, and oh, it was all very peculiar. People in those days listened to it when into what was called a cat's whiskers. So you can imagine how primitive it was. Well, it's a long time to remember back, but can you remember much about your own feelings when you were playing for the audience you couldn't see? Well, I didn't think of that, really. It was Mr. White was, was worrying me sitting there because he was sitting in a very dark corner, and the whole thing was very dark. It was rather a... Um, a feeling I had to kick myself, really, to say, oh, well, now, play up, someone might be listening to you, you know, kind of thing. The great act of faith which every broadcaster makes, more people than I can see, are listening to me. That's one thing which hasn't changed in our 40 years. A name that comes to mind immediately when one thinks of Radio Aaron's early days is that of Maurice Nigrada, best known today, perhaps, as the author of that remarkable play on Thrill. I asked Miss Nigrada if she, could, if she had been with Radio Aaron from the very first night. No, I joined the staff just a year later. In what capacity? Uh, my rank was that of woman organiser. Well, it sounds formidable. It what does, does it mean? Yes. It, it, I was in charge of the programmes for children and for women. You had to create programmes for children and women? Uh, yes, I started the children's hour. And though I say it who shouldn't, it was an excellent children's hour. Uh, and one of the reasons was that... Um, I had extremely good people to help. The thing was new, you see, it was a new toy, and it was exciting and fresh, and everybody wanted to get in. And I had people like F.J. McCormick, Eileen Crow, Maureen Delaney, Sarah Allgood, and people like that, willing and, and anxious to participate. What for a reason. lovely time. It was a very good time indeed, in that way. They, they didn't do it for money, they did it well for love. And for the, and, uh, it, it, was, it was great fun because, um, when I joined the staff, I wasn't warned by anybody of the existence of copyright. 
I knew vaguely that copyright existed in the written word, but nobody had told me that it existed also in the spoken word. So I went ahead gaily and I broadcast everything that came to hand, and though I said we shouldn't, I had a very, very good children's hour indeed. Well, I think occasionally walk into situations which were slightly beyond your control. <laughs> there was a certain actress manager of this town. Yes, well, we had no reader of plays, you see. We had only the, the director. And what usually happened with regard to plays was that somebody who was a producer or fancied himself or herself as a producer came along with the script and got a booking. Then it was left to the producer to engage the, star, the, the cast and to take complete responsibility for the programme. The fees paid were usually so low that if the producer paid his, his cast, he was out of pocket, so he usually assembled his cast from his friends and relations and pupils. And as I said, the play was rarely read in advance and certainly never rehearsed. But on one occasion, this, this lady, who was very well known in theatrical circles at the time, came along to the director with a script of a play. It was written in pencil in a couple of copy books. And he read it and he said, oh, really, this is a damn fine play, you know, I'm going to put it on. So he gave the lady an engagement and the play duly was broadcast on a Sunday evening. I was announcing that evening and... Um, the play was on the air for about five minutes when the telephone rang and a rather cultured male voice said to me, are you the announcer on duty? I said, yes. And he said, what did you say the title of that play was? I said, so-and-so. And he said, who did you say the author was? I said, madam, so-and-so. And he said, permit me to tell you that the title of that play happens to be Escape and that the author is John Galsworthy. <laughs> But we got away with it, we got away with it. Well, you were lucky. <laughs> when one thinks about drama in the early days, many names come to mind. John McDonough, Elizabeth Young, Esme Biddle, May Carey, John Stevenson, J.J. Henry, Pat Hayden and Gabriel Fallon. It's all so far away and long ago, or so it seems. The big room, for it was nothing more, in Great Denmark Street with the fist-sized porcelain microphone lying in its bath of rubber and held there roughly at face level on a sturdy mahogany stand. This is to RN calling. The excitement of those evenings when we sat with headphones pressed tightly to our ears and twiddled with cat's whisker and crystal until from a distance which seemed like, like outer space we heard the voice of Seamus Hughes, or Mairead Nagrada, or Kitty Roddy, or even that of the station's director, Seamus Clandillon. And then the even greater excitement of being asked to broadcast. Tiptoeing into the room, studio we called it now, having been led there almost in the manner of the blind, by Mac the messenger, and put into the professional charge of Seamus or Mairead. Shh! Wait for the Cayley trio to steal away behind the curtain. Now, over towards the mic and wait for the announcement. And suddenly you realise you're on your, your own from now on. My concern, and the concern of many others, lay in the drama department. This was fed by companies or groups which elected to present at first one-act plays originally written for the stage, then special scripts as writers began to concentrate on the technique of writing for the microphone. 
acting too was undergoing a change. And instead of giving a stage performance in the presence of a microphone, players were beginning to develop what came to be known as microphone technique. Change is inevitable, said Disraeli. In a progressive country, change is constant. This is certainly true of broadcasting. The metamorphosis of 2RN into Radio Telefiseron has had, for those of us who live on the fringe of it, a speedy and rather frightening perplexity. It was as if the canal boat we once knew had suddenly turned into some huge atomic battleship. The aesthetic growth has been no less marked. In the drama department alone, the one with which I was most familiar, there has been, long been, a repertory company of players familiar with every nuance of radio technique. On at least two occasions, the much-coveted Italia Prize has been won by scripts written by Irish authors and presented by this company. As for the effects department, well, that is a mysterious and truly magic world of its own. Whenever I chance to visit the studios, I slink along corridors peopled with unfamiliar but efficient faces, and I feel I'm a stranger in a strange land. And I sometimes wonder if that room with its solitary microphone in Great Denmark Street was not just part of some vague, adventurous dream. Gabriel Fallon. In April 1927, Radio Aaron's first real expansion took place with the opening of a studio in Cork. This, as Geraldine Neeson recalls, had a most improbable location. High on a hill above Sunday's Well, a residential suburb on the northwest of Cork City, stands what was once the women's jail. Later, during the Civil War, it was used as a political prison. And still later, the upper stories of the governor's house which formed the centre block of the enormous building, was converted into Cork's first broadcasting studio and offices. What was it like to work in a broadcasting studio situated in a converted jail? In fact, it was very pleasant, once we had negotiated the climb up the stone stairs to the top floor. My husband, Sean Neeson, was the director, and his job resembled Poobah's. He arranged programmes, engaged artists, made announcements, ran gramophone recitals, held auditions, sang a group of songs when the occasion demanded, and conducted the orchestra. This last was his pride and joy, for, to begin with, there was only a quintet of questionable standard, but gradually he coaxed, encouraged, and gently bullied the players, and augmented the numbers until it grew to a pleasant chamber group of string players, and at last to an orchestra capable of a creditable performance of a Mozart symphony, or a Beethoven concerto. The late Arthur Duff was a frequent guest conductor, so was Signor Grassi, and Arnold Bax wrote his appreciation of it on more than one occasion. It was a great heartbreak to see this hard-won triumph collapse. A breakdown of the lines between Cork and Dublin on a weekday often brought down a small crisis, for it meant that 6CK, as Cork was known, had to put out a programme of records, not long-playing records, be it remembered, but the old style. With a small library, a three-hours programme to fill and little time to prepare, this called for some dexterity, 
for it meant changing records, changing the needle, announcing the items, and often, whilst a record was playing, a quick run downstairs to collect another stack. It was quiet there. No traffic noises intruded. Only the bird song in summer made its way into the programmes. There was no way of keeping it out. A great attraction was the view across the valley. It even made an impression on the engineers. One of them, a man not usually suspected of being Beauty's slave, gazing out of the window, astonished his hearers by saying in a deep, slow voice, There's a lot of pulchritude knocking about out there. Ah, well. Happy days. Geraldine Neeson. This programme so far has been singularly, and happily you may feel, free from dates. But there are two which must be mentioned. First, 1947, a vital year in our history. To quote from the appropriate handbook, in no other year since its inception did the Irish Broadcasting Service see so many changes. Most of them, if I may add a footnote, new appointments. The radio errand players, the mobile recording unit and the scriptwriter section all came into being in 1947. And in general, Radio Erin, which until then had been very much an offshoot of the Department of Posts and Telegraphs, began to take on a life and character of its own. Five years later, in 1952, Radio Erin moved still further from direct and complete civil service control and achieved a considerable degree of autonomy, with an advisory council headed by Charles Brennan to guide its destiny. By then, incidentally, the Radio Trio of 1926 had become a symphony orchestra of more than 75 players. We had, as you might say, almost grown up. In all those years, what has Radio Erin achieved in the arts? Here are the impressions of three people, each a specialist in his own field. First, in the matter of radio drama, the critic Maxwell Sweeney. Radio drama in Ireland emerged slowly as an art form from the reading of short stories and poetry. Its evolution was delayed not by lack of talent, but by lack of facilities to exploit talent. A single microphone had to be sufficient for early productions. Effects were virtually non-existent. Every play was broadcast live until after World War II. There were no recording facilities, no tapes. This meant a once-and-for-all production, rehearsed when the company, drawn from actors in Dublin, could be got together. One of the most important developments was the establishment of the Radio Aaron Players during the late 1940s. This brought together a group of talented artists, and provided an opportunity for full-scale development of radio drama. Producers were assured of a regular company with opportunities for properly organised play readings and rehearsals. And with the coming of recording facilities, producers and players could evaluate their own work on replays. Large casts create problems of identification for listeners, yet these problems can be overcome. Think back to the performance of Shakespeare you've heard. Talky plays, such as the plays of Wilde, have made very good radio adaptations. And despite the lack of visual images, melodrama has invariably been successful, provided that the producer has shown a true sense of melodrama and not allowed the actors to burlesque the lines. Family series and serials, the Foley's and the Kennedy's,
have become remarkably popular as short radio plays, largely because of satisfactory characterization. Some adaptations of Victorian novels, particularly those made over for radio by the late Gerard Healy, have a strong impact, establishing settings and clearing away descriptive passages without involving the producer or the listener with long stretches of narration. Gripping and holding interest, enchanting with words, this is the role of the radio play, whether it's a semi-documentary in the manner of Dan Treston's international prize winner, Piano in the River, or with the richness of Poirig Fallon's The Poplar, or Seamus O'Kelly's The Weaver's Grave, with which the Radio Aaron players won their first Radio Italia prize for Ireland. Radio's brought the world's drama to people who've never entered a theatre. It brings to the sightless the pleasures of one of the greatest of the arts. Maxwell Sweeney. Next, music, Professor Anthony Hughes. In the first 20 years, Radio Aaron's music programmes had an agreeable air of informality. From small beginnings that was established in the early 30s, the nucleus of a radio orchestra, which could be enlarged by members of the army band for occasional concerts conducted by Harty, Bolt and others. Dr Vincent O'Brien was the first director of music, and many will recall his series of studio opera presentations, so skillfully condensed and so well produced. His successor, Michael Bowles, was, like him, also the orchestra conductor. His great initiative inaugurating a regular series of public concerts in the Mansion House from 1940, later in the Capitol Theatre, made the orchestra the focal point of musical life in Ireland. He shared studio concerts with Dr Arthur Duff. Jean Martinon's electrifying first concert here in 1946 revealed the orchestra's true potential. Shortly afterwards, Bowles went to New Zealand to build an orchestra there, while in Dublin, our orchestra was permanently enlarged. Meanwhile, Fochner O'Hanrochoin became music director, and he presided over a period of remarkable internal expansion. The symphony orchestra, working in concentrated spells with Martinon and then Schmidt Isserstedt, by 1950 acquired a new confidence. Soon there evolved a light orchestra, the Radiwern Singers, and later the String Quartet. Groups were formed from the orchestras, so gradually the pattern emerged that Ori personnel supplied a high percentage of all music programmes. Correspondingly, the symphony orchestra became indispensable to opera in Dublin and Wexford. The light orchestra played for ballet and musicals. Radio Aaron also began to commission new works from Irish composers. Public concerts allowed laps in the late 40s were revived in 1953 and have flourished on Sundays at the Gaiety ever since, many being repeated in Cork, Limerick and Waterford. A regular flow of foreign players and visiting conductors maintained the orchestra's international outlook in the 50s. Milan Horvat was most frequently in charge, but Doyle, O'Brien and other Irishmen also conducted the orchestra. Thibaut Paul inherited a substantial workload. He brought a new fatality and discipline to the orchestra, showing a thrilling mastery, particularly in large-scale works. Professor Anthony Hughes. And finally, the spoken word apart from drama, Dr Kevin Nolan. 
radio gave a new dimension and a new public to the lecturer and the discussion group. It is true that special techniques and an additional element of imagination were necessary, but the wonder remained. The talk, the discussion, which had once reached only the few, could now be heard by vast audiences. The cultural value of all this was clear. And from the outset, Irish radio was quick to include talks in its programmes. As the resources of the station developed over the years, so also did the scope and character of the talks on Radio Aaron. It was eventually realised that while the isolated talk or feature had its merits, the danger was that the information conveyed would remain unrelated to a wider context, or else that the lecture would only attract the specialist and discourage the general listener. A more systematic approach to the presentation of cultural topics was obviously necessary. The problem of how to integrate the isolated lecture into something more, more coherent was not, of course, unique to Irish radio. In other countries, too, the challenge had to be met, and the solution was the series of lectures on the same or related themes spread out over a period of months. The Wreath Lectures on the BBC provide one example of this method. Another is our own Thomas Davis Lecture Series, which have added so much to the cultural value of sound broadcasting over the years. The Thomas Davis Lectures began in September 1953, and since then, in addition to a number of individual lectures, some 33 different series have been broadcast, and the range of topics covered, almost all relating to different aspects of Irish life, has been remarkable. Experts have spoken on such major themes as science and Ireland's natural resources, Irish social history, some aspects of Irish folklore, the Irish 19th century novelists, the shaping of modern Ireland, the people on the land, Irish towns, the permanence of Yeats, and Ireland 1926 to 1936. It might fairly be said that the Thomas Davis lectures constitute a virtual university of the air on all aspects of Irish culture down the centuries, an achievement which owes so much to the enthusiasm and devotion of the late Francis McManus. The spoken word has made its impact on radio in other ways too, of course. Alongside the more formal lectures and informal talks, the discussion programmes such as Farmers Forum and the Round Table on World Affairs have introduced an element of controversy and debate that is most welcome. Perhaps some listeners too will recall some years ago the Saturday Forum which added liveliness uh, to the weekends. In a remarkable way, radio has been able to bring the general public closer to the scholars and the experts than was ever possible in earlier times. Dr Kevin Nolan. Forty years into 30 minutes simply won't go, and so I've had to leave out much matter and many names that really ought to have been included. Austin Clark's work in the domain of poetry, for example, the part, the very large part, which the Gramophone Library plays in our lives, book reviews and programmes like Michael Farrell's Radio Digest and the magazine programmes of Monk Gibbon and Cecil Solkeld. All these and much more have simply had to be left out. And so, in the end, what remains to be said? Let's look back almost 40 years and see what was expected of us. On December the 30th, 1925, the Irish Independent wrote, The announcement that the Dublin wireless station will broadcast its first programme on New Year's night will be received with pleasure throughout the country. 
The innovation should prove to be especially welcome to those who dwell in rural parts, where dullness of life too often makes for discontent and sets youth along pleasure paths that lead to sin and crime. Whether we've had much success as preventers of crime, it's hard to be sure, but I think it may fairly be claimed that we've gone a considerable way towards fulfilling the second part of the independence prediction. Henceforth, the possessor of a receiving set will have the pleasure of knowing that he can listen into a programme chosen not to suit the tastes and needs of neighbouring nations, but to suit the Irish people. That in itself would be little. But looking back over professional association with Radio Erin, which has lasted longer than I care to remember, I feel that a larger claim can be made. It, it isn't easy to be objective, but it does seem to me that by refusing on its listeners' behalf to be content with less than the best, by working always to higher and higher standards, by being independent in judgment and adventurous in planning, the organisation can claim, in reason and modesty, to have fulfilled an essential part of its function where the arts are concerned, by extending the needs and enriching the tastes of those for whom it exists, its listeners. How valid that claim is, only you can judge. On the night of the official opening of 2RN, New Year's Day, 1926, O'Donnell Abu was one of the tunes played on the violin by Arthur Darley. It was to become, some ten years later, the official station identification tune, and in its way it is a symbol of the station's concern from the very beginning with the national and the traditional. On that first night, too, the Irish language and songs in Irish were prominently featured. Dr Douglas Hyde, former president of the Gaelic League and later to become first president of Ireland under a new constitution, performed the opening ceremony in Irish and English. The director, Seamus Clandillon, and his wife, Maraidney Anagoin, were both well known as singers, as song collectors and as Irish speakers. Both sang on the opening night some of the songs which are to be found in their published collection, Lund of one of Seamus's songs was Knockon in Eirochil Wille, which was afterwards recorded commercially and which still survives. Within the first few nights of its opening, Cormac McGinley played traditional Irish airs from 2RN on the violin. He remembers being placed in front of a microphone in the studio in Denmark Street, and as he played a jig or a reel, the director danced around him, no doubt by way of encouragement. Everything was very informal and friendly. <laughs> And Dorishore, Agus Shemus Clandaloon, Agus Shemus O'Hay, Agus Bert in Eltor. She never made a be young. 
agus wieder gribieder geleer an loch le gogene hanige stachse station bi anu wa hoget hener hemus kandillen ernoi o schade wi de wi de wi shana hanegomer agus bunte kafare agus bunte kon an bunte kon an kultore well i'd say he was very sympathetic to irish music of all sorts he loved irish music more and more than any other kind although he was he although he was he he was uh, he was he he loved all sorts of music but he preferred irish music to anything else and his wife also was a well known singer yes she was a she i remember i remember hearing her first in glasgow at a gaelic league concert uh, about the year 1908 and she had a beautiful voice then this is mered nianagain of course we're talking about yes. yes and she sang i think too on the first night didn't she she did she was she was sang on the first night and she was on fairly often during the first year but uh, uh, her voice was not uh, her voice was her throat was giving a little bit of trouble and she had to go very easy after that a couple of years afterwards the same informality still held but by now there were special programs for women and children Maredni Khrada was appointed in charge of these and again Irish language and music were given a place Well is kinung van hier die wie is fenimon klar and so she can call us ne lani she no be stuske to got the den of task got the man glad us ne lani just as no no ach and hier die is kinung of skill the gunning ail go khanal karnach agas auranagen o gerard crafts agas when is fen on the even as her father so klar agas we we in shauke kommen san tarn hier is kinung begin she skilling ail get agas jean jean nolan kana ian <laughs> 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 Vincent O'Brien 
In the very early days of Tuaren, there was much more emphasis on song recitals than there is now. Features, discussions, panel games and the like were unknown. The monotony of singer after singer was relieved by an occasional talk and a selection of instrumental music. The musical items, vocal or instrumental, could of course be varied within themselves, and in the field of Irish music could range through various instruments, through Irish and English, from the Lanigan's Ball type of song to the genuine traditional ballad or the Shannos as heard in the Gaeltacht. There was a difficulty, of course. Traditional singers in Irish nearly all lived very far from Denmark Street. There were very few that we had here. Of course, you see, they couldn't be brought up because the station couldn't afford to pay their expenses and the fee that was given was very small so that the only time they ever had any traditional singers on were those who were living in Dublin or near to Dublin. And except on an odd occasion, when there was some big occasion in, in, in the city for, for girls, then they used to get a hold of one or two of the strangers then. Well, you remember most of the pipers and fiddlers who were active at that stage, Cormac? Yes, I do. There weren't very many, but I, I, I remember most of them. And those whose names I can't remember, I can still, I still have a picture of their faces in my mind. Uh, um, the, the piper that was most on at that time was Seamus, Seamus Ennis. And then there was another very fine piper from Waterford City, uh, Liam Brenach. Then there was a man called Andrews. Liam Andrews. Liam, Liam Andrews. And then there was a, a little lad called Sean O'Dimsey, Sean Dempsey. And after him came Leah Rousam. Liam was very young at that time too. Tommy Breen was another musician you mentioned. Yes, Tommy Tommy Breen was a was a wonderful piccolo and piccolo player and flute player and it's often that he played solos by himself he was an old uh, he he learned his music in one of the army bands in in england somewhere but uh, when he retired he settled down here and he occupied himself uh, with Cayley music entirely <laughs> Tommy Breen playing the piccolo on a very old recording 
and at a speed of 78 rotations per minute instead of the 82 recommended on the disc. On the opposite side of the record is the first Cayley band combination heard on 2RN, the Dick Smith Trio, consisting of Dick Smith himself on the fiddle, Tommy Breen on the piccolo and Charlie O'Byrne on the piano. Cayley Band was something that was associated with Irish radio almost from the beginning. Opinions differ as to whether the Cayley Band was a good thing in itself or whether it was a good thing for Irish traditional music, but on at least one point there seems to be little doubt, that Radio Erin had a good deal to do with its development. Well, there was only one Cayley Band at that time, and that was uh, Dick Smith's, Dick Smith's Cayley Trio. And it remained like that for never went beyond a trio for five or six years after the station opened. Well, it's been said that Clan Dillon was responsible for the Cayley Band as we know today. Is that true? Well, as far as I remember, it was Vincent O'Brien a few years after that that, was the, that really started the, the idea of having a large Cayley Band made up of different instruments. But I don't think that uh, Clan Dillon ever made any serious attempt to form a band, although there was a band called Anshimsa, which had been formed by Superintendent Delaney of the Guards Band. And Seamus took an interest in this band, and he gave them engagements on the radio, and then he brought them over to London, and, and uh, we, we made records there. How did the records go? The record went very, very well, but the company, the company went bankrupt, <laughs> and the result was that there were no more records after the, the, the stock had been sold. Well, weren't there other efforts to form Cayley bands? Wasn't there an effort made, made to uh, form a station Cayley band? Yes. When Vincent O'Brien was director of the station, he made very a very serious effort to, to try and get uh, a proper, a good Cayley band, one that he would like to to have asso be associated with the station. And he asked five or six different people to form Cayley bands with uh, different combinations of instruments. And these bands were formed and they all performed on the radio, but uh, there was none of them satisfactory. Had Radio Erin much influence, do you think, on the development of traditional music? Well, it had. It had. I don't know about recently, but I know in the days of, of uh, Vincent O'Brien, Vincent was always on the lookout for a good Cayley band anywhere in the country. And he had, he had two or three people, including myself, 
when we were travelling around. If we came across a Cayley band, we were to let him know. And uh, he always gave them uh, uh, an audition. Mm. And quite a number of them got, in, got engagements. What was the reaction of the public to what they heard from 2RN 40 years ago? Well, then as now, there were people who didn't want Irish traditional music. There were people who didn't want the Irish language. And there were people who wanted neither. Here is a typical letter from the Irish Times of the 3rd of March 1926 over the signature Castor and Pollux. Night after night, a tiresome programme consisting mainly of stilted drawing room songs is served to us, and neither Irish folk songs nor Irish pipes have made us acquire a taste for the peculiar music and raucous musical instruments of our forefathers. Doubtless it is well to make the world aware that we cherish our early national music. We would do the same for Adam's fig leaves, but surely the most enthusiastic antiquary would smile at the idea of wearing them in Grafton Street. Our grand store of rudimentary music, and indeed vocal items of any sort, become tedious when broadcast in a wholesale manner. Dame Melba palls upon one after several performances, Save us from our two RN warblers. And if our letter writer of 1926 is still around, who will he find are the warblers of Denmark Street today? The Beatles, of course, and all the other tops of the pops, distributed from there by one of the greatest organisations of its kind in the world. Seamus Clandillon had an answer for his critics. Many of the anonymous letter writers, he said, were jealous or disappointed musicians who had not been asked to contribute to 2RN. And to those critics who had no axe to grind, he said, Well, will you come along and provide a night's or a week's programmes that will please everybody? I know there were those complaints, and I know that Seamus Clandaloon and Seamus O'Hay, the first director, and... And I forget, what, what was the name of the position that Seamus had? I think he was assistant director. Yes, assistant director. I know they did their best to push, uh, to put Irish music into its proper place. But I don't really think that they, they ever went beyond the bounds with it. Was there a conflict then, as there probably is still, between country and city interests? Well, yes. Of course, we all know the country people would prefer our own music, the traditional music. But uh, I think that they got a fair, a fair proportion of the time. In the beginning of the station's career, speech programmes were few in either Irish or English, but they did exist, and they included lessons in Irish, German, French and Spanish, and lessons on Irish dances, the latter given by Dinny Cuff in the beginning and later by George Leonard. When Maureen Negrodi came on the staff in 1927, a half-hour was provided for children and the station now came on the air an hour earlier at 6.30. Well, I do remember the stories, the stories in Irish for the children. And then which you did yourself, which, I which did you myself. supervised yourself. Yes. yes. And then there were lessons in Irish given by Sean O'Connor And Seamus O'Dirna gave lessons in Irish too. He used to give the middle grade and uh, Sean, the other man, the first, the beginners. Where were they from? Seamus O'Dirin and... Oh, Seamus O'Dirin was a Ringman, he had lovely ring Irish, beautiful ring Irish. I don't quite know where Sean Shanahan came from. I think he was a Kerry man or a Cork man. I'm not sure. 
But most of the programs in Irish in those days would have been, I suppose, musical programs, songs, in fact. Oh, yes, we used to have a lot of songs. And then at St. Patrick's Day, we never spoke a word of English, you know. That's the thing I think that's forgotten now. There's great credit to Seamus Clendillon. Not one word of English went out from us on St. Patrick's Day. All the talks were in Irish, the announcements were in Irish, weather forecasts, news, even the gramophone records were announced in Irish on St. Patrick's Day. But what about the early plays in Irish? Uh, I have oh, not very clear memories of those. I don't think we had any to begin with. From the very beginning, then Cravey Hatenig did some, some of Pierce Beasley's plays, as far as I remember. And then very much later on, Dimado Halloween did plays. He did um, the sort of magazine, which was very good indeed, called Bolligatlawhit. Excerpts from the magazines and newspapers and that kind of mm. thing. It was very good. Tomás Lovage, I think, was associated too with the early plays, wasn't he, in Ireland? Yes, yes, yes. He produced plays and he wrote some very good plays for children too. Garold O'Loughlin, of course, was a man who I think was on in the very early days as a singer of all things. Yes, I remember a programme of sea shanties which he did. A producer in those days had to undertake the whole business himself from beginning to end. Oh, absolutely. The producer got the contract from the station director and he recruited his, uh, his players and uh, rehearsed outside for the most part and concocted his own effects as best he could got a fee, which was never very large, and then paid his, uh, his cast as well as he could out of what he got. And if he was out of pocket, well, it was just too bad. And I believe, too, if you wanted to spend more than five pounds, you had to have Department of Finance approval. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it wasn't always possible to get it. Well, it wasn't always easy to get it, I should say. For the children's hour, for me, there was a flat rate of one guinea. That was for telling a story or for singing or giving a talk or anything. Whether you wrote the story yourself or whether you took somebody else's story and told it directly, or pirated it, or bowdlerized it, or what have you, the fee was still one guinea. Well, so that, I'd imagine, would have been a great drawback to any sort of progress at all, wouldn't it? Well, not really, you know, because the thing was new. It was a new toy, and everybody, everybody wanted to get in on the act, you know. And as I said, we were all young in those days, and we were all enthusiastic, and it, it was fun. We didn't do it entirely just for the guineas, you know. We did it because we we liked it. Yes. Well, what would you say is the greatest change that has come about over the years, Maria? The greatest change, I would say, in, in how much easier conditions are now for you people. Perhaps I shouldn't say this. You oh, know, say but it by <laughs> all means. <laughs> but I, I was not only announced, I was also in charge of the gramophone library. Of course, it was very small then compared to what it is now. I had to plan the gramophone concerts, which we had every, every day. I had to translate the news, not only read the news often at sight, but I had to translate out bits of it at sight and um, give them out. Nothing was written for me, everything was extempore. I had to keep the log, of course, as well. And uh, I was the only announcer. I just did word relief announcer one evening a week and alternate Sundays. I was here every Christmas for 10 years. Whatever plays were broadcast in Irish around 1926 and 27 seemed to have been produced by outside groups and to have been relayed from places outside the studios. One of the most ambitious productions of this kind was reported in the Evening Herald of the 4th of April, 1927. Listeners in to 2RN yesterday afternoon were treated to an Irish rendering of the Antigone of Sophocles, translated into Irish by Reverend Patrick Brown, professor, and relayed from the music hall, Maynooth. The choral odes, especially that by Mendelssohn, were admirable and came through very distinctly. 
the performance reflected great credit on Dr. Brown and the students. Dr. Brown gave an interesting synopsis in Irish and English before each scene. And we may mention that among those taking part were the man who is now Bishop of Down and Connor, Dr. Philbin, as the girl, Antigone, and Dr. P.G. McGarry, now editor of The Follow and Professor in Maynooth, as a Greek messenger. One other aspect of the Irish tradition with which Radio Aaron has been concerned from the beginning is Gaelic games, and here it can claim to have done some important pioneering work. In August 1926, the sports writer P.D. Meegan, known as Carberry, gave the first running commentary on a game from Croke Park, a hurling match between Kilkenny and Galway. This was said to have been the first commentary on an outdoor sports event broadcast in Europe. It was also said at the time that Croke Park might as well close its gates if Paddy Meegan and his makeshift box were not thrown out. But as usual, the prophets were proved wrong. Not only did attendances at matches not fall away, but they improved immensely. Carberry gave hundreds of commentaries in the years that followed, and he was succeeded in 1933 by Eamond de Bala from Cork. <laughs> Well, did things change much in the years since then, do you think? Well, I don't think that technically uh, things should have changed very much. Naturally, I haven't done any broadcasting for years, but I'd imagine that the facilities then given were, were much the same as now. There might be a little more comfort. Uh, I remember one time doing a, a running commentary in Limerick, and there was a, an improvised galvanized shed erected on stilts, but the noise from certain uh, people who couldn't get in to see the match battering on the galvanized shed, I'd say, drowned a good deal of my comments. I do remember about the original boxing Croke Park on the wet Sunday, the famous Sunday that uh, uh, Limerick and Kilkenny met. Kilkenny beat Limerick that day, although Limerick were the form team. The rain came in on me when I was in the box. Another thing I, I treasure about that match was that Sean O'Murphy, the famous cock fullback and captain, God rest him, wasn't able to attend that match. And I have a letter still that he wrote to me after the match, saying that he so much enjoyed my commentary that he wouldn't go to any more All-Ireland finals. That was a great tribute from Sean O'Murphy. Yes. Well, did these uh, broadcasts, the early broadcasts now, did they have that effect in, indeed of keeping people away? Oh, I wouldn't say so. I would say that an awful lot of people were stimulated by the broadcast, the dramatization of matches, to go to attend matches. I do know myself that uh, in my area in Cork, before I came to Dublin, I was one of the few people that had a radio set and on the days that Monster Hurling finals or all Ireland finals were being played, we had a large number. I used to have to bring the set out of doors to facilitate the people. But I do know that an enormous number of people uh, were stimulated to go to attend the matches in actual practice rather than listen into them. The Gaelic games and traditional Irish music have for many years now provided some of the most popular programmes on this station. 
Radio Erin itself can claim some share of the credit for bringing them to the place they now hold in the people's affections in town and country alike. Since 1947 in particular, greater financial and administrative freedom, increase of staff and recording facilities have meant that no area is any longer outside the scope of broadcasting. Since Sean McRearman, Seamus Ennis and Joe Lacey made their first recordings of Peg Sayers and of Kerry Folksingers in that year, the music, songs and speech of every part of the country and of the Gweltacht in particular have been made available to Radio Aaron listeners. In 1945, Radio Aaron had two disc recording machines and they were in the Dublin studios. In 1955, there were 25 recording machines of all types. Today, there are more than that number of portable tape recorders alone in regular use. This improvement of facilities reflects the increase in staff whose job it was to record what was going on throughout the country and to return to the country what they had collected in the form of features, documentaries, magazines, news, commentaries and what have you. The language and the traditional music benefited in particular from these developments and the voices of the islands and of the remotest glens from Tory to Arran and from Clear Island to Ratlin have all been heard during the past 20 years. It is hardly for those who participated in the expansion of that period or who are still concerned with the compiling of programmes to appraise what has been accomplished. Perhaps only those who remember the leaner times of broadcasting can really appreciate the change that has come about. Robordo Farachoin, who has been in charge of programmes since 1940 and has consequently been in a large measure responsible for the transformation that has taken place, has more reason than most for remembering the disabilities under which the broadcasting services laboured in the 30s and 40s. Writing in the Radio Aaron Handbook 11 years ago, he recalled a time when not enough Irish speakers could be found in Dublin at periods like Christmas and Easter to keep programmes in Irish going. What he had to say then is still relevant and is a fitting last word. There is a great difference between yesterday and today. Nor han the sachun vehagobel lashtig the radio eren. Ni virshed the churum acher chlar ranog avain evehaserun the gelge. Tan ranogishin avadni samadula salata nuvan, agus tagachen chaunako a serun the gelge, agus yet abul to eid. Agus fos, nil crotter bid dar feder chorer chlar radio, birshen the chaintenden avain, in a yisporicht nav schrifer, in a operetta no in a irish chlar nochta. Na fil fun agus ash er radio eden leshun grotshin achor er chlarach agailge. Is mor idrine agus inov avishin le diamagloide. Music, drama and instruction form part of the broadcasting programmes, so does sport. But these have been dealt with already, and there are many variables connected with them. Things can be done ill or well. There's the matter of interpretation. And whatever is heard from the music or drama departments is impressed with some individual style. Interest in a sports broadcast is conditioned by some feature of the game itself or of the race. When we see Radio Aaron acting as a public servant through its 40 years, it isn't in connection with these things. But as the provider of certain facts at regular intervals, the Times when the public relies on the broadcasting service without realising that it is relying on it.
That is time made audible. Time chopped up into one-second intervals by the familiar pips. Forty years ago, Dublin 2RN kept us up to the minute by saying, The approximate Dublin time is two minutes past eight. Approximation. But a close enough approximation to set the watch by. This is Radio Erin manifesting itself in the character of the public servant. It announces the hour, confirms what a watch indicates, or corrects it. I checked with the time signal at half past six, so I know I'm right. When Radio Erin grew older in the approximate Dublin time days, there was an attempt to control the station clocks and the time signal by a direct link with Dunsink Observatory. But this doesn't seem to have been a success, and in the end, the Broadcasting Service adopted the standard international system of one-second pips that vary in pitch only from station to station. This is the sound of the clock room that holds the master control for all the clocks of sound radio, and it's controlled by another clock at television headquarters. The clock mechanically interrupts a continuous note, breaking it up into six pieces that usually represent the last seconds before the hour or the half hour. It's not to be supposed that many people feel actually grateful to a public clock for allowing its hands to convey the message that the day is so many hours and minutes old. Nor has anyone been consciously grateful to sound radio for the announcement of the hour by this public servant. It's been doing its business for 40 years and the existence of its services is accepted without question, just as the availability of the police or the fire service is accepted. When that's heard in the evening, it's often used to check the watch that will measure off the time to an appointment next day. In the morning, it opens the day's broadcasting. Radio Telefisieren. Mori of a module, and you're on Luan and Dunalaw Day, the Vinanolog Law Ella Nave Inian. Good morning, everyone, on the morning of Monday, the 12th of December, the Feast of St. Finian. The time signal was for 8 o'clock. From then on, the time will be announced during the morning programmes, both formally and informally, to remind people getting to work that time is passing. At noon, time is announced in a different way. When the broadcasting of the Angelus Bell at noon and six o'clock from the Pro-Cathedral of Dublin began, a permanently placed microphone used to be switched on to pick up the sound of the bell as it was rung. Now this system has been almost reversed. The microphone is still there, but the bell is rung automatically from Radio Aaron by an apparatus that's set in motion by the master clock. When you hear the Angelus bell of the Pro-Cathedral from the street, the bell is being rung by the public servant.
So, the announcement of the time opens the broadcasting day for us. When the station first opened officially, a time signal of some kind was the first transmission. 1st of January 1926, 7.40, tuning note, 7.45, time signal and opening by Dr. Douglas Hyde. Very well. It's such and such an hour on a particular day. What kind of weather will sweep over us during the coming hours? Two days after the official opening, what is described as a weather report is programmed. Later it becomes a weather forecast, but in those days it was probably a repeat of the forecast provided by the newspapers. The public now expects the weather forecasts to be broadcast at the scheduled times. They're like the announcement of the hour, part of the business of the public servant. And the public servant gets the information from another public servant, the meteorological office, which draws from the great international pool of weather observations and uses this with information from local sources. Anemometers, one of them on top of the TV mast at Montrose, tell the tale of the wind force. Dublin Airport reveals cloud base. Civic Guard sergeants in the country report the rainfall. It all adds up at the Met Office. The early weather forecasts were of a general nature, but in 1950 it was felt that the familiar sea areas of the British forecasts hadn't a sufficiently local application for farmers and fishermen, and our weather areas were rearranged into north, northeast, east, and so on to south. Southwest, and then through west to northwest. There's also a midland area. And the sea areas are now even more closely defined from point to point. The ordinary citizen uses these forecasts mainly to see when the rain's going to stop. But there are people with special interests that give the state of the weather great importance. Obviously, there's the fisherman and the farmer. The decision to open a meadow may rest on the morning's weather forecast. It may make the fisherman look to his moorings or go to sea, or the gardener turn on the heat in his greenhouse. The men, putting on a few bets at the weekend, may listen to the weather forecast to see what the going will be like. It's consulted all the year round in the interest of sport. All winter long, it helps the motorists to estimate the state of the roads. Up to 1939, these forecasts were received from England by press telegram. During the war years, no stations broadcast weather forecasts, but when it was over, the meteorological service, which had been busy at Foynes, among other places, began to provide its own forecasts. These are the forecasts used in broadcasting. Again, like the time signal, the weather forecast is something expected of the broadcasting service. Neither time nor weather ever get articles about them in the RTE guide. They're just part of the day-to-day -day duty of the public servant in the last 40 years. Here's the sea area forecast for the next 24 hours. Meteorological situation at 21 hours. A depression of 976 millibars near Donegal is moving east-southeastwards. A trough of low pressure will persist tomorrow over Ulster and the north of the Irish Sea. Sea area forecasts. Sea area Rosson Point to Fairhead to Carlingford Loch and the Irish Sea north Time. of the Isle of Man. Time and weather. 
Time, weather, and news. Sean Dyson in Canary. And we've got a first count result here. It was announced just about an hour ago by the returning officer, Mr. Tom Clark. Constituency of South Terries. Number of members to be elected, one. Number of valid votes, 27,223. Two seven two two three. Quarter. That is the number of votes sufficient to secure the election of a candidate. Thirteen thousand six hundred and twelve. One three six one two. Now the results of the first count. Michael Begley. P.P. O'Reilly, who spent many years in the newsroom and now works for Irish television, describes how the news service grew up through 40 years. 40 years, or should it be 50, since the first news bulletin broadcast in Ireland. For in 1916, from O'Connell Street in Dublin, was transmitted the very first newscast in the history of broadcasting. It was the announcement of the Declaration of the Republic. Within less than 10 years... Within an independent Irish state, a low-power transmitter in Dublin began its continuous transmission. It has never been silenced since, not for a day in 40 years, less the Good Fridays when other thoughts mattered more. Idealism controlled becomes humdrum, and that is what naturally happened when 2RN was established at the beginning of 1926. There is no record of a newscast before 1927, and the reason is not far away. Nobody then believed that radio had any place for news. The news was a gimmick to add to the entertainment that was considered the task of radio in society. But slowly people learned that what was news would just as likely come over the radio first. In 2RN they weren't helped much to that end, until the 21st of May 1927, when a world scoop was first uttered via the microphones of this station. It's still a mystery how the breakthrough reached the GPO, since the system of news gathering in those days cannot be compared with the present system. But on that day, the continuity announcer of 2RN was able to tell his listeners that Lindbergh had crossed the Atlantic and flown over Kerry on his way to Paris. Ireland had again secured a first in the medium. But the fortuitous announcement did not conceal the fact that 2RN was lamentably ill-equipped to deal with even a small news break, let alone the first solo crossing of the Atlantic. The newsroom as such did not exist. Irish radio was not unlike a hick station in West Virginia with a few employees who could keep it on the air. Someone high up said we should have a better news service, and someone just as high up tried to find out what the minimum cost would be. The answer was a thousand pounds a year. 
and that was impossible. Finally, after compromises that sound strange these days, a part-time operation was agreed to that brought us up to World War II. It was actually in the spring of 1939 that Dan O'Connell was appointed editor of Radio Ireland's news service with the title of news officer. He had no help from any agency, Reuter, UP, AP or anybody else. How he found the news was his own affair, and how he broadcast was uh, equally so. Dan O'Connell served the state, censor permitting, in this unenviable capacity throughout World War II. One day someone will record that in total war, Radio Aaron, through its news officer Dan O'Connell, consecrated itself to a neutrality in news, and how it was done. Having access by radio to both German and British communiques, and free freedom to use both, Radio Aaron acquired a reputation for giving both sides of the story. The announcer then was Nick Barron, who later concentrated on his legal profession. Brian Dernan returned from Geneva, where he was operating the radio service of the League of Nations, and he too became an announcer. He is now our man from external affairs in Strasbourg, where he is accredited to the Council of Europe. Both were under armed guard during news transmissions, and Moydrum transmitting station was protected by sentries from Athlone. I was in charge of the guard there a few times, with instructions to destroy the equipment if it was likely to get into enemy hands. The war over, Dan O'Connell left to, to become editor of the uh, Connor Tribune. He is now chief sub-editor with the Evening Press. He was replaced in Radio Aaron by Michael Lawler, who became radio news editor, a position he still holds. Dan O'Connell's work during the war now brought recognition of the importance of the news service. Within three years, from 1945 to 1948, the situation in the newsroom changed dramatically. When I joined in March 1948, Michael had acquired an assistant editor, a professional journalist, Jim McElroy, who is now chief sub-editor in the Radio Television newsroom. He had uh, also two professional reporters, two clerks, and, lo and behold, at last, a teleprinter service, linking us to the world service of Reuter Press Association. A United Press link was to follow soon afterwards. We had reached the end of the beginning. I joined as a descriptive news writer, together with Brian Dernan, who moved over from his job as head of announcers. Our job was to write and read special news reports, a job that became more involved as time went on. Brian gave the first of our talks in the news, a story on and about Maundy Thursday, 1948. I followed with the first use of the brand new recording vans on the Easter Monday holiday when trains, buses and cars were full of people enjoying their first real day out since the restrictions of wartime and its aftermath. From then on, the green vans were out and about the country, following the news and finding feature stories. In the vans, actual records were made, and we would dash back to the studios, Dublin or Cork, to put them onto the turntables and intersperse a linking commentary. Some were good radio, some were horrible. The, the worst, I think, was in Cork, where discs that recorded a naval commissioning ceremony, when put on the turntables for transmission, 
were cut to ribbons by the brass-headed pickups in the makeshift studios in the old women's jail. Another embarrassing moment occurred in Letterkenny, County Donegal, at the second or third annual gathering of what is now Macrana Ferma. Uh, at the same time, it was a step forward in news presentation, even if we stumbled the first time. Up to then, the only broadcasts from points outside the two studios were programmes like sports fixtures, church services and the uh, occasional opera. What we proposed to do was an absolutely new venture with us, to make reports from any post office in the state that had its own exchange. And for this very first venture, we chose Letter Kenny and the Young Farmers' Congress. We went there, made some recordings of the speeches and sound effects, I typed a script and then sat in the driver's seat with a microphone. We were plugged into Letterkenny Exchange and we transmitted our records and speech through the lines to Dublin, where it was all re-recorded in the uh, Henry Street Studios. The experiment was a flop. We heard it in the news later that night, being played back to the entire Congress, in front of the Bishop too. Our faces turned the conventional red shade. We traced the defect to a simple cause, a bad needle in the recording van's playback system. Next time, we knew we'd succeed, so we planned the same operation for Sligo and the funeral of Yeats. For the first time, outside Cork, a provincial centre heard an illustrated report of an event in its own area. This was it. Maybe you remember. Led by a piper's band playing a lament, the cortege moved into the town of Sligo, Yeats town and took over an hour to pass through the streets, lined with crowds, all shops closed and shuttered, all work at a standstill. From then on, the demand for similar coverage was eagerly sought by all event organisers throughout the country. We averaged four a week, and that took some doing with just two men on the reporting job. We looked for our next conquest. At that time, 1948 to 49, we had never reported from outside Ireland. When government ministers went to London for trade talks with the British, Michael Lawler seized his chance and broke down another barrier. Government authority was given to have a reporter sent to London, Brian Dernan. Government authority, for we were all civil servants and tied to the Department of Post and Telegraphs. After 20 years and more, we still had to get permission from the Department of Finance if we were to go abroad to cover a story. The present minister, Mr Childers, was directly responsible for ending that situation and giving us our first measure of autonomy. But before that happened, the prospect of an even greater step forward in the range of outside broadcasts opened up, back in 1950. It was the Holy Year, and Cardinal Dalton was to lead the first national pilgrimage to Rome. We had had direct transmission from Rome before, including the first mass of the reigning pontiff, Pope Pius XII. But all that was Orbi et Orbi. This time we wanted him to speak to us. Not everybody could get to Rome, but perhaps Radio Aaron could 
help do what St. Columbanus had done in another way and bring Rome to Ireland. Permission granted. So I made my plans. But one trouble. Radio Aaron had no recorders that could be carried. Today you might think we were very much behind the times then. But you wouldn't be right, for Radio Aaron used tape machines before the BBC, which conservatively clung for quite a while to recording on disc. Radio Aaron did have two studio tape machines, big affairs like jukeboxes, but nothing portable enough for me to hawk about, so I went to Peter Hunt, the first operator of commercial studios for recording in Dublin, and ever since a good friend and a new neighbour of mine. He had a magnetophone tape recorder over which he sweated for days and right through the night to get the machine ready for my trip to Rome, even equipping it to run off batteries as well as the mains. So I had a sizable load, the recording machine, the motorcar battery and a stack of tapes and wires when I went aboard at Dondere. I travelled across Britain and then France and Italy by train, alone, except for a thousand helpers notably a bishop's secretary. On the French train, the guard, a Monsieur Ego, recharged my batteries from the train's supply. Everything went marvellously, including the interview with the parish priest of Moat, County Westmeath, the late Monsignor Langan, then in the 90s, who presented a walking stick to the Pope. But the climax was on the fifth day when the Pope in St. Peter's spoke to us. The long journey which for some of you, dear children, has meant great sacrifice, is a manifestation of the sincerity of your desire to participate fully in the grace of the Holy Year. It is therefore all the most consoling for us to welcome you to the eternal city. Our special greeting to the Irish National Pilgrimage Holy Father then welcomed us in Irish. That was the 3rd of May, 1950. The door was open again. We had come a long way from the days when the new service wasn't worth a thousand a year. And from that day, only five years before making that recording, when the news editor heard he was to have professional journalists to help him in his work. The rest is progress up a steep gradient. Topical talks at 1.40, started by Morris Gorham in the 1950s, still going on. Provincial News Roundup, now 15 years old. City Newsreel a year younger. And to meet the expansion of our country more and more outwards into the cause of the world as a whole, Congo Chronicle. And the reports of our first war correspondent, John Ross, on an army jeep in Katanga. John Ross, who presents the latest of the newsroom features, the early morning, it says in the papers. Michael Lawler, John Ross and I, in 1949, started the diary programmes on New Year's Eve. In 1961, the newsroom became the news division and straddled radio and television. To, uh, today, together, radio and television, 20 news bulletins are transmitted every weekday. The rest, you know in sound and silence, in black and white. P.P. O'Reilly outlining the history of the newsroom. Time, weather and news. 
Three things announced by Sound Radio for the benefit of the public. Sound Radio has been a guide during its 40 years and it's been a friend. A friend whose advice is often sought, even if the informal giving of information is no part of the duty of the public servant, it shows the confidence and reliance that has grown up. Dennis Meehan, the studio supervisor, knows this side of the sound radio very well. A voice says to the radio television and telephone switchboard at Henry Street, what year was the Battle of the Boyne? Well, we've been a long time in broadcasting now, 40 years, isn't it? So we no longer express surprise. During broadcasting hours, especially at night, it's 10 to 1 that Switch will put that kind of call through to supervisor, or failing that, the announcer on continuity duty. I actually got that particular one about the Battle of the Boyne, and the conversation went something like this. The caller said, I was asking them there, what year was the Battle of the Boyne? Me, are you sure you have the right number? The caller, that's Radio Television, isn't it? I said, yes, but especially at night, you know, we're not a telephone information service. Caller, sure I thought you knew everything in there. Well, that's very nice of you. Caller said, the way it was, me and a friend were having a bit of an argument. Me, you weren't having a bet by any chance. Caller, well, we were, we were, we were. When did you say it was? The caller said, ah, no, play fair now. We agreed that we'd agree to anything you'd say. I explained, listen, I'm not an expert at all in this, but I do know, as it happens, that it was 1690. And the caller said, good man yourself, that's great. Good luck now. Well, it's quite true what I said to this caller. We're not a telephone information service. Knowing my colleagues and their often startling expertise in the most abstruse of contexts, I have no doubt at all that we could maintain such a service if it weren't for the irritating interruptions caused by having to prepare and get out the programmes. But who'd be talking formally about regulations to a man who wants to collect five bob in a pub from another man who is either right or wrong about the date of the Battle of the Boyne? There are times, of course, when the shot just isn't on the board. It must happen that the faith people have in our omniscience must, again, I insist, especially at night, be occasionally misplaced. But even more likely, it may often, very often be, that we have other things to do, such as broadcasting, for instance. In continuity, it can and does happen that we'll have to say to a caller, excuse me now, I have to make an announcement. This has the gratifying effect of dumbfounding some callers. When the announcement is heard, both on the radio and faintly on the still live telephone simultaneously, it at least engenders the conviction that we are at work. I think every broadcaster worthy of the name would agree that in all situations we must have as our fundamental working basis the fact that we're providing a service to the public. This means that supervisors on duty and announcers must be at all times patient, courteous, cheerful. But none of these obligations can come between us and our duty to attend to the primary service we're providing, the broadcast of Radio Television's programmes. That said, I should be very sorry to miss this immediate link with you that the telephone often provides. Even if occasionally I have to tell someone that, no, I'm very sorry, I can't audition him or her in singing over the telephone, I cannot allow that to blot out the fact that a man once rang me from Liverpool to check on the spelling of a word. In the human condition, glory such as this 
cannot be lightly forgotten. Another part of the service given by Sound Radio has been to help the listeners to feel they are present at a national event or a solemn occasion by giving the mind an eye. Part of the service is to inform. Time, weather and news. And there are the subdivisions, storm warnings, fish prices, cattle prices and the state of the stock market. Messages of urgency to individuals. Forty years of public service. After that length of time, a public servant would probably retire with a pension and a suitable presentation. For sound radio, there's no retirement. But there's a reward without retirement. The confidence of the public and maybe an unconscious affection. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big. 